Habits and Health, episode 30. Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health. Today, my guest is Dawson Church, who is an award-winning author who has um, a number of books. One is called The Genie in Your Genes. His most recent book is Bliss Brain, The Neuroscience of Remodeling Your Brain for Resilience, Creativity and Joy. And Dawson has got experience in a number of different areas in in EFT, in in neuroscience. And we're going to find out a lot more about the many areas that Dawson helps his clients or patients with. So that's in, in this week's episode. And if you know anyone who you feel will get some value from some of the wisdom that Dawson shares with us, please do share the episode with them. Hope you enjoy this week's show. Habits and Health, my guest today, Dr. Dawson Church. How are you doing, Dawson? I am doing great, Tony. Good to be here. Well, thank you for for coming on. And we find you in Northern California today. Northern California for a long period of time now. But, and as we were discussing before the recording started, your accent is not very Northern Californian-ish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has little twinges of everything from Texas, where I went to university, to South Africa, where I was born, to Shrewsbury, England, where my family's from, to all these different parts of the world where I've, I've touched base or lived. So I picked up a little bit of everything. So you're pretty well-traveled. Yeah, and I, I love traveling. We, My wife and I travel about six months of the year, of course, in 2020 during the pandemic. That was curtailed. But, um, you know, Tony, people are people wherever you go and where they're, they're, whatever their skin color, whatever their nationality, even whatever um, period of history we're in, we, we basically want to be happy and feel good. And you find that commonality. And so wherever I travel, it's, I'm just so struck by the fact that the basic human condition is the same, the basic human problems are the same, and the basic solutions are identical to each other. I, I agree with you so much. I've, I mean, similar to you, I've lived in 11 countries, traveled to 80-something countries, and I could not agree more with what you just said. It's funny when people like go on vacation or go on a retreat and say, I'm going to go to Tibet, or I'm going to go to Nepal, and I'm going to go on this long retreat, and I'm going to really get a change and, and solve my problems, get away from my struggles. And they get to Nepal and they realize, I brought them all with me. Because, <laughs> you know, your consciousness is your consciousness and you, you can't escape it. So uh, that's really the, the big question is how do you both feel well in your body and feel well in your mind? And so that's uh, the, the real quest for health. Well, and, and following on from that, because the other thing about that is, Sometimes people, they will talk about different places and they'll say, oh, this place was good, that place was terrible. And I always think, well, no, any place is what you make of it. It's about your attitude and what you bring to the place. It, that place, to someone else, where you said somewhere was terrible, someone else probably had a fantastic time there. Yes. And again, it's our consciousness and that's what we're, we're bringing to it. People, places we tend to think of that were nice may have just been places we were relaxed or we got ourselves out of our usual way of thinking. And there's so much, so many, so many human ways people try to get out of their usual um, style of being. And that, that style of being, that, that self that we inhabit 
is manufactured by the brain, by especially by the, by the mid prefrontal cortex. And um, in my research, I look at that part of the brain very carefully. And when I read studies, I look to see what's going on in that part of the brain because the mid prefrontal cortex is building your sense of self. And so you have this the sense of self that you've constructed over time, and that just runs. And in fact, that's part of what's called the brain's default mode network. We default to being the self that we are. And so to jog us loose from that preoccupation is is really important. And many people just spend their, their lives in that, that same old self. And then they may use alcohol or drugs or travel or sex or adventure sports or meditation to try and extract themselves from that source. In one, one of my friends has calculated the size of that uh, that 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 endeavor in dollar terms, and Americans, on the pursuit of getting themselves out of their heads, spend more than the entire economy of the UK every year, about three trillion dollars every year, trying to get themselves out of their their heads, out of their, themselves, out of their old way of being through you know get all the, all of those methods uh, through through dance through drugs, through alcohol, through all these ways of trying to get ourselves out of our heads. And that's, of course, where our suffering lies. So there might be a, you know, the occasional vacation you've taken that is taking you out of your, your usual way of being. But uh, that's the big dilemma of the human condition, how to shut mm-hmm. down that suffering, whiny, always on inner commentator that's saying, I am this, and then just be in the moment for a while. Well, that, that's an area I think we we can dig into quite a lot during this episode. But before we go into that, could you explain to listeners what it is that you do? I mean, they may have, may have got a, a hint of what you do from some of what you just said. But yeah, what, what is it you do? Several things. One is I do primary research. So that means doing randomized controlled trials, means doing outcome studies, means doing research projects, getting them published in peer-reviewed medical journals and psychology journals. And so over the last 20-plus years, I've been involved in around 100 uh, studies in one way or another. So I love science because it shows us what's real. Um, just for example, in, in one of my books, Mind to Matter, I explore the whole idea of our thoughts and reality and look at the science behind how we can actually literally create molecules, literally create reality around us. So uh, what does science tell us about that? Not, not what do we imagine about it? What, what, is, um, what, is, um, what do people imagine is possible in that way? What does hard science show us we can create with our minds? So I, I do studies. I also write popular science books. And so I look for ways of, of turning this research into language that anyone can understand. And then I also do training. And we do social projects too. Like I did a lot of research in after around 2000 on PTSD. And so we try and turn that PTSD research into viable social programs. We found that there was a 10 session, 10 therapy session routine that cured PTSD in nine out of 10 people. And we then began to make that available to hospital systems, to the military, to athletes to various other groups of people. And through our nonprofit, we've now treated over 21,000 veterans with this 10-session protocol. So we try and translate that in, this into um, applications with real social value. And so that, that's my, my passion, is doing the research, seeing what science shows, explaining it, training 
professionals to use it, and then applying it to real social problems like PTSD. And, and what was it that got you into the, the science and, and in, you know, in the first place? The failure of spirituality and psychology. <laughs> when I was 15 years old, I was incredibly miserable. I was anxious. I was depressed. I was having flashbacks and nightmares and intrusive negative thinking. I mean, my, my whole way of thinking was negative. I knew I needed to fix myself. And in fact, in, in one of my books, I tell the story of being 15 and walking past a full-length mirror in a hotel and looking at myself at the age of 15. And so I had long, long, curly, blonde, blonde hair halfway down my, my, my body. I had like these bell-bottom jeans on and a bag of books slung over my shoulder. And I had this thought pop into my head as I looked into my own eyes. I said to myself in my mind, the words were, those are the saddest eyes I've ever seen. And I realized I was just so screwed up and had to do something to try and fix myself. So I went and lived on a spiritual community for a few years, on and off for about 15 years or so. I uh, learned the great traditions of the world. I learned energy healing, learned meditation, but I didn't get much happier. And I, I could see that just as, as the people around me in my society growing up had been leading lives of quiet desperation, most people in the spiritual path had an attempt to extricate themselves from that desperation, but were still pretty miserable. So I then decided I'd try psychology, and I enrolled for correspondence courses in psychology. Back then, it was all mail, snail mail, pen and paper, and I began to study psychology. And again, I got a little bit happier. It could solve some problems, and it told me about things like the brain's negativity bias, that our brain just, if there's a positive and negative option, it defaults to the negative one. So I began to learn more about, about psychology, but I didn't get much happier. And then eventually I really discovered science. And so when I applied, like at, at, at one time I was in my, like by my twenties, I was really, really overweight. And so um, in my forties, I said, you know, I've tried all these diets, all these approaches. What does science say works? And it turns out there are actually about seven things that actually do work. I wrote a book called EFT for Weight Loss. Um, I applied them in my life. I lost a huge amount of weight, and I then ha have enjoyed a normal weight for more than a decade. So, um, so science helped me with things like suffering, like weight, and happiness. I then, in my book, Bliss Brain, turned my attention to what really actually does a happy brain look like? What does the evidence show us? moves the brain into happiness. And again, you ask the question of science, and it's crystal clear. So science has really given me answers to questions I, I that, that I did not get from spirituality, from religion, from psychology. Hard science, empirical science, really has been a, a valuable source of answers for me. So much to dig into from what you just said. So one of the things that... Um well, you talked about happiness. So how would you define happiness? There's a wonderful quote from a Chinese philosopher from over a thousand years ago that says that happiness is the absence of seeking happiness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And 
happiness <laughs> is a fundamental sense that everything is okay. And we, we tend to operate and our brains have evolved to focus on things not being okay. And so happiness, optimism, positivity, all of these things had absolutely no value to our ancestors in the evolutionary scheme of things. If you can just think back 100,000 years, 500,000 years years ago, and your ancestor, who was a happy-go-lucky optimist, it was just like, for example, the other day I was um, mountain biking, and on the trail ahead of me, I saw this long, thin, wavy, brown thing. So is it a stick or is it a snake? Snake or stick? Stick or snake? Okay. So my ancestor 100,000 years ago, who said, oh, I'm an optimist. It's a stick. Uh, And, you know, most of the time, he or she is right. It's a stick and nothing bad happens. But the one time he or she is wrong and it's a snake, it bites them and they, they die. So optimism got weeded from the gene pool over the course of thousands of generations. And the ancestor who said, it's a snake. Now, even if it's a stick 99 times out of 100, the ancestor who says it's a snake, it's a snake, it's a snake, who's, this ancestor of yours is paranoid and suspicious and defaults to the negative. That had an incredible amount of evolutionary value. That guy survived passed his genes on to the next generation, the process repeated itself, itself for a thousand generations, and now we have these brains that have evolved, have evolved to pay unerring attention to anything bad in our environment. Uh, Swami Muktananda, whose ashram I went to many years ago, would hold up a white sheet, and he'd, have, he'd t- taken this white sheet, and he'd taken a red pen and put a tiny dot of red ink in the middle of the white sheet, and he'd hold it up to his, his disciples, his followers, and Swami would say, now tell me what you see. And uh, his followers would see, Swami, we see a red dot. And he'd say, oh no, you see a white sheet. <laughs> You're only focusing on the red dot. And so, um, you know, these brilliant, wise Indian philosophers pointing out, out that there's this huge white sheet. All we're focusing on is the red dot. And that's the brain we're born with that focuses unerringly on it's a snake, it's a snake, it's a snake, even when most of the time it's a stick. So that that um, that ability of our brains, that characteristic of evolution, which served us so well for our whole evolutionary history, going back millions of years, today, I've done some research on cortisol. Cortisol, your main stress hormone. It's driving cortisol sky high. When cortisol goes up, immunity goes down, digestion goes down, circulation, respiration, all of these things are affected by stress. And now we, we measure people's stress, we measure their hormone, hormones, and they're, they're thinking and they're living Tony like they were in the jungle. And actually everything is pretty much okay with most of our lives. There are very few lions in the bushes ready to strike at us. The people from Canterbury are not about to invade with spears and slings and trebuchets and try and wipe us from the face of the earth. And so we're living in this time of, of, of immense prosperity and plenty, but our brains are wired as though we're still in the Paleolithic era with all these threats. So that's the fundamental problem we have today is we have to use science to learn, to counteract the weight of those millions of years of evolution and not focus on the snake. As happens in my case, by the way, the end of the story, 
it was a snake. It was a beautiful brown snake. And so I, I just stopped there in the path, looked at the snake, took some photographs of the snake, and really enjoyed the snake, and then and then moved on. So um, that's what we, as modern humans, have to do to extricate ourselves from this dilemma, is we have to learn to build the happy parts of the brain and reverse that evolutionary process. But from what you were saying there, that, that takes... I mean, I'm thinking, what is the answer to that? Is it awareness? What, what is the answer to that? When we study these Tibetan monks who are super happy, and again, by super happy, I mean they, they independently have uh, brainwave patterns that show that they're, they're content. They have a lot of this wave called gamma, and gamma is the wave of integration. It's the wave of compassion. It's the wave of creativity. It's the wave of joy. And they have... Some of them have like over seven times the amount of gamma of ordinary people. So they're making a lot of this happy, creative, integrative brainwave. And so um, we measure them and then they train themselves into that state. So the the way to get there is training. Now, their training is intense. It's 10,000 hours or more. They're spending a lot of time. They're going away to a special place convent, a monastery, and then they're attaining those states. And so we, in neuroscience now, we're really focused on looking at ways of bringing people to those states without the 10,000 hours. But the answer is training. You just have to train train yourself. And, and the good news is that when you do that, your brain changes really rapidly. In my book, This Brain, I give the example of a, a man who decided to learn meditation and mindfulness and he signed up for an eight-week mindfulness meditation course. But his name is Graham Phillips. He has a TV show called Catalyst in Australia. And so he took his whole TV crew with him into a university lab where the researchers measured the volume of every single part of his brain. He then began to do his mindfulness practice. After just two or three weeks, he felt far more in a peace. He felt really calm. After eight weeks, he went back into the lab, and they measured all the different parts of his brain again, the size, the volume of neurons in each part of the brain. And several parts of his brain had grown by 2, 3, 4% in just eight weeks. The part of his brain that governs regulating emotion, emotional regulation, so that this means when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you don't scream and swear and go into road rage, or when your boss tells you you can't have a raise, or when your wife or your child says something that annoys you, you're just totally calm. You have good emotional regulation. You can regulate those those caveman flares of paranoia and anger and frustration. That part of his brain, it's called the dentate gyrus. It's a little bit of tissue that that coordinates emotional regulation all across the brain. So Graham Phillips's dentate gyrus in only eight weeks grew by 22.8%. So some parts of our brain are growing very rapidly. And again, it's not taking 10,000 hours. It's only taking eight weeks of practice. Wow. I think, I mean, as you were talking there, and you, you, you know, you're talking about the gamma rays and the, and the monks and Graham Phillips and so on. And one of the things that was coming to mind, and I, I asked another guest this recently. I, I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who was an expert in meditation. And I've heard a lot about binaural beats and um, one of the sellers, I, I guess you could say, of binaural beats is something called Holosync. 
I mean, do you know much about that whole binaural beats and whether the claims that are made are, if there's any basis to them or, or so on? You know, I I used Holosync myself in the late 1980s, and I knew the founder back then, he's since, since died, but um, they did do some research. And um, what I focus on myself is inducing these states yourself. Uh, so there are ways of doing them, inducing them through drugs. There are ways of inducing them through devices, like you know, the Muse headband is one that many of my my um, my students use. Uh, there are others. There is a uh, another really great system from the UK called the Mind Mirror. Um, there are several. There are a lot of new ones coming on the market now. Lots, a lot of devices. There are some ways of doing it with substances. Um, there are ways of doing it with with external um, entrainment and like a neurofeedback, biofeedback. And so I focus on doing it naturally. What can I do? In myself without any outside stimuli that'll put me in those elevated states. And so that's really my my focus in research. And is it because as you were saying that it made me think about, you know, humans, we always looking for shortcuts for things. And so it's the, it's the same for, for meditation. We're trying to find, oh, I don't want to spend 10,000 hours. So what's the quick way that I can do this? Yes. And in Bliss Brain, I look at all the evidence for the different forms of meditation. And what research shows is that there are really just a few things that you can do that are effective. And the the sad news for meditators is that the vast majority of what people are doing and methods they're using are of limited effectiveness, and some are really ineffective. Like the instructions I got in meditation when I was 15 years old, the, the teacher said, Meditation's simple. You just close your eyes and still your mind. Well, the first of those is easy to do. <laughs> but usually when you close your eyes, the default mode network of the brain lights up, the midprefrontal cortex, the seat of self-centered thinking, and you're worried and you're stressed. You're thinking back to things about bad things in the past, bad things that might happen in the future. You're anywhere about the present moment. And so the way most people try and meditate is difficult and actually often counterproductive. You're, you're lighting up the wrong circuits. So in Bliss Brain, I, I, I give people recommendations of what to do that science says these things work. And you need to focus on evidence-based practices. And then that's going to mean that a lot of the stuff you were doing, you know, the saffron robe and shaving your head and the 108 prayer beads and the rose and the, and the cruci- and the rosary, um, you don't need a lot of the things people are are using. They're just the external trappings of the experience, and they're just based in culture. You know, the, the Buddha was um, in in India, and so he was wearing robes and wearing beads and stuff. So people think it's the robes and beads. Uh, the Franciscan nuns we study, who are in these ecstatic states, they have they're they're using the rosary. People think things the rosary. People think it's the external stuff, the external theology of the religion. And it's an internal state. And that's what we need is that internal state of inner peace. That's the thing that really, really counts. Emotional regulation. In Bliss Brain, I talk about the four parts of the brain's enlightenment network. And there are four things that, four parts of the brain you have to light up. Light those up and you just go straight into the ecstatic experience of a St. Francis or St. Teresa or a Rumi or a Hafiz. So you're going 
into these elevated emotional and mental states. But again, science shows you how to get there quickly. And so could you go into more about those four parts that you just talked about? Yeah, so I organize them in Bliss Brain. In Chapter 4, I, I show you how to activate them one after the other and in order. And so the first one is what Graham Phillips did, which is emotion regulation. If you're... If your emotions are wandering, if your emotions are um, all over the place, if you're being triggered by emotion, you just can't be happy. In the book, I tell about one team member of mine, and he was not a meditator, but his girlfriend was. And each morning she'd meditate for an hour. She'd close her eyes, sit on her meditation cushion, long time practice. And he would tiptoe around the apartment getting ready for work, didn't want to, want to disturb her, her meditation. And then one day he made a little noise and he did disturb her. And she opened her eyes and glared at him and shouted out, don't fuck with my serenity. (laughs) (laughs) So that's about all the good that that instruction of close your eyes and still your mind is doing. People are stilling their mind, trying to still their minds by closing their eyes and their minds are not still. They're full of anger, blame, resentment, all that old self-talk. And so that is not only counterproductive, not only uh, unproductive, it's counterproductive. They're lining up the default mode network. They're just in their their self-centered focus still. So you have to do things that get you out of that. And so you want to first have emotional regulation. So that's number one. The first circuit to light up is the emotion regulation circuit. And again, as Graham Phillips showed, if you light it up every day for eight weeks, it can be growing by about 10% a month. And so your ability to be emotionally resilient and not get emotionally triggered is growing dramatically, really quickly, in terms of the hardware in your brain. You then want to learn to pay attention. So you have a focus of meditation, and there's a whole set of, of um, regions that have to do with paying attention. And the one I talk about in, in Bliss Brain the most is the orbitofrontal cortex. That is like an arrow in the front of your brain that focuses you on the object of your attention. You then want to also light up the selfing, I call it selfing in the book, the self-centered thinking, selfing control network. And again, it's that mid-prefrontal cortex. In the brains of meditators, we find that they have the ability to shut down that selfing network and the midprefrontal cortex. In one MRI study I did, it was amazing that people developed that ability in only a month. In, in only a month of doing the special meditation that, that I've now had millions of people do, um, we looked at their MRI scans after a month, and they learned to just turn off that network, that self-centered network, just as effectively as those Tibetan monks or, uh, or Catholic nuns. So you want to control that self-referential thinking. And then the fourth network is compassion. You want to turn up compassion because research shows that compassion triggers neuroplasticity faster than anything else. And I'm not saying don't ever do any other kind of meditation. You may want to do a moving meditation sometimes, like I'll get up between interviews or between task and I'll move around. I'll do a moving meditation. I may do some qigong. It's not compassionate meditation. But for positive neuroplasticity, you want to trigger the fourth of the four networks. That's the compassion 
network. And then when you've got those four circuits active, that's all part of this enlightenment network in the brain. And you feel super happy. That's when you have a 700% increase in gamma brain waves. And you're hitting levels of bliss. Like this brain researcher called Judith Pennington, who began to use my meditations. And I said to her after a month, I interviewed her and she said, I said, I said well, you know, how happy are you right now relative to where you were before the month began? And I know Judith is a very happy person. I've known her for 10 years. And she said, I was really happy before I began, but I'm transcendently happy now. And that's what the level these people hit when they go into bliss, like a Rumi, like a St. Francis, they're in this elevated level that's far beyond the ability of most people to even know exists, a level of happiness that's way up there in those elevated states. So that's, that's where those four networks will get you. And so you, you mentioned the, the book, um, is it This Brain? This Brain, who, yes. Who is the book aimed at? At people who want to be happier and know what science shows about how to do that. So it's a popular science book. It's empirically based. It's grounded in all this research. And it's, it's for people who want to counteract that old tendency of the brain to revert to looking for the bad stuff and learn to cultivate a brain that's actually oriented to the good stuff. And what happens is if, if you evoke these states often enough that you get to the point where you're turning the software of consciousness into the hardware of brain. So you're building circuits now, and then you're resilient. And so you now have a resilience you don't otherwise don't have. And so in the first chapter of Bliss Brain, the publisher said to me, Dawson, don't, don't just talk about these brain networks, these phenomena. Add in at least one chapter that's a personal story. So in chapter one of Bliss Brain, I tell the story of, of an event that happened to me that was definitely um, challenging for me, which was that I lost my house, all my possessions, my office, and everything in a wildfire in California in 2017. And it was dramatic. My wife shook me awake in the middle of the night, and I looked at the clock and said 12.45 in the morning. I looked outside. There was a glow on the horizon, and I knew something was wrong, so I walked outside, and there was a wildfire just sweeping down the opposite hill toward our, our home. And I just yelled at my wife, we're getting out of here right now. And we literally sprinted through the house, threw on clothes, grabbed our phones, ran to the car as the trees above us were just exploding into flame. And we, uh, we drove a few miles away. We knew we were safe. But we, st we stood looking from a safe place at the fire. And it was... It was surreal, Tony. Um, it was. It sounded like being in a war because car gas tanks were exploding, propane tanks were exploding, houses were. We watched one like three million dollar house just ring by the flames, and then just explode in a second in, in flames. And it was just. It was this crazy night. Five thousand four hundred house, house homes burned down. Twenty two people died in the flames because they were moving so fast. People couldn't escape. They died in their cars, they died in their garages, they died in their beds. And so um, there was a massive tragedy. And we were just completely disoriented. Uh, a friend sent us pictures the next day, texted us pictures, and she she got in past the army and taken photographs of the property. 
And where the house had been, there was a concrete slab, a layer of ash, a chimney sticking up, and nothing else. Our cars had melted. The washing machines and office furniture had melted because our office was on the same property. So we saw, we just lost everything that, that night and then had to spend about two years pulling our lives back together again. So you need that hardware of resilience when you're in that that space. Now, we experienced, and in Chapter 7 of Blue Brain, I tell the story of this whole phenomenon of post-traumatic growth, how you use a tragedy, if you are resilient, to move to a whole new level of well-being. But that's the difference if between having that hardware and not having that hardware in your brain. If you have that resilient hardware, you may have a, a loss like losing um, your property, losing your livelihood, a divorce, losing your job. But resilience means that you have the ability to withstand those shocks and actually use them as the fuel for a transformation. So um, I've, I've used these methods in my life, and they have made a, a just a massive difference. And so when well, the, going back to the books, when was the, the book published? 2020. Okay. And how is, what's the reaction been since it's been released? It's, it's done well and it's been translated now into, I think, uh, about 15 languages. And, um, we've had a lot of positive feedback from people. And the main thing it's done is that it's, it's, it's people meditating because at, as, as well as the book, at the end of each chapter, I have something called deepening practices and resources. So we have free meditations there. We have free, free online classes. We have links to YouTube videos. We have all kinds of ways of engaging people. And so one lady walked up to me at a workshop and said, Dawson, um, after I read your previous book, Mind to Matter, I made a resolution to use your meditation for 30 days and not skip a day. And that's the kind of commitment that we're seeing people make because they realize it's important and these meditations feel good. And so I asked her, well, you know, of the 30 days, what, what day are you on right now? She said, I'm on day 47. <laughs> and that's the effect of these meditations that, that people get as a result of the book. They feel so good immediately the first time you try them that people then keep on doing them as daily practice. That's really been the, what, what we look for and hope to see is people adopting this as something they do every single morning. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you're looking for the fastest and most effective way to transform your energy and well-being, we invite you to join Tony for an upcoming Habits and Health workshop. This five-week group workshop will empower you with tools to disrupt unwanted habits and make positive changes easy. You'll enjoy sounder sleep, better energy, less stress and a happier mood. Workshops begin on the first week of every month and you can sign up now at tonywinyard.com. Now, back to the show. I'm wondering in the book, for people who are maybe not experienced meditators or who put too much pressure on themselves about meditation, they think they're doing it wrong, and there's so much conflicting advice on the, you know, on the Instagram and the internet. Do you help people through how to do it effectively. Absolutely. And again, that's translating the science into a practice that you can use. And so 
what we find is there are several things that are effective. And then the bulk of what people are trying to do is ineffective. So science narrows it down to just a few steps that do this. And they involve neurofeedback, biofeedback, mindfulness, acupressure, breathing, heart coherence. So all of those things put together are able to bring people to these elevated states quickly. And have you worked with any um, any individuals who maybe have been in a really bad place and by the help of the meditation, they've managed to you know, really change their lives? Yeah. In, uh, in Bliss Brain, I tell the story of uh, a, a young man called Bryce Rogo, and he wrote us a long letter about his experiences. And he, he was deployed four times to Iraq and wound up with severe disabling PTSD. And he was discharged from the army. He did all kinds of things to try and solve his problem. He went to Japan. He went to live in a Zen monastery for a while, um, learned Zen meditation. And then he stumbled across my website with my meditation on it, because we've had this meditation up on the web for free for about 15 years. And he just did it the first time right off the internet. And he said, suddenly, just listening to that audio track and following along, I was in that place that I've longed to be for all these years. So it does help with with those things. And people, it doesn't take, take, take long. The first time you do it, you usually know something is is happening. So you want to do something effective. And absolutely, it does help people who are struggling with PTSD, anxiety, depression, or other things. It needs persistence. It's worth doing it regularly. And then once you've recovered, you then move on to peak states. So we, we do have two phases to the work. The one is healing trauma. If you try and go to peak states without healing trauma, then you may get to a peak state, but it won't be stable because in the background, under the surface, in your unconscious, subconscious, you have all of the characteristics of trauma unaddressed in, in your life. But you want to both heal trauma and then once you're stable in that healing, move on and then experience those peak states. Because the cool thing is we do have the enlightenment circuit in our brain. We sure do have the default mode network making us suspicious, paranoid, and miserable. But we have the Enlightenment Network making us resilient, creative, and happy. So if that's the circuit you're firing day after day, week after week, moment after moment, that circuit's getting bigger and better at conducting signals. It's affecting your whole body. We're seeing that it changes neurotransmitters, that it changes immune function, it changes physiology, it changes aging. In one study of uh, people's psychology, the researchers found that optimism, just the trait of optimism, thinking positively about what happens to you, is associated with 10 more years of life. You know, 10 more years. You live 10 years longer on average if you're an optimist. And so it's definitely worth using the leverage point of your of your, your psychology, your emotions, your spirituality, because it has a profound effect on your health and your longevity. Well, and in those 10 extra years, that wouldn't just simply be 10 years living longer, I presume, but 10 years better health span rather than yes. simply health span. That's correct. Well, um, less I cancer, see- less heart disease, less diabetes, less hepatitis, less of all these uh, major compromisers of people's health. 
I seem to remember when I looked on your website, do, do you um, do you do something about EFT as well? Yeah, I, I work EFT tapping into almost everything I do. I wrote the most recent edition of the EFT manual. I, I have the biggest training and certification program in EFT in the world. And EFT is simply using acupressure, pressure or tapping on acupuncture points and it very, very quickly regulates the stress response. I mean, what we see in people using tapping in EFT is that when they think of a stressor, a bad thing that happened in their lives, like that young man who was in, in Iraq thinking about those bad events, when you tap, and we use tapping as part of the meditation as well, that the emotional midbrain, the fight or flight response turns off. And people still remember the bad stuff that happened in their lives they just no longer get upset about it. So that, that's EFT. And is, is, does EFT always involve one person doing it on another, or can someone do it on themselves? You do it on yourself, even if you're working with a practitioner. Like we have live practitioners at a, on a platform called tappingplace.com. And you go on, on tappingplace.com, you work with a, a certified trained practitioner there, and they're tapping along, but they're tapping with you. They're tapping on themselves, and you're tapping on yourself as well. And for trauma, we recommend working with a practitioner. Or severe long-term problems, like, for example, relationship self-sabotage, money issues, weight. It's much quicker to work with a practitioner. But for a ton of common problems, uh, anxiety, performance stress, all these relatively minor issues, people tap themselves without a practitioner and they very rapidly feel their stress response go down and then they're much happier. So if someone was interested in learning more about this and they wanted to work with a practitioner, from what you just said, they could do this online. So even though you're in the States, someone in England, for example, would be able to, to contact you and, and go via doing it via Zoom, for example. Yeah, they're doing it uh, with, with practitioners on, online virtually. Uh, one woman emailed us a few months ago and said that um, she had been trying to quit vaping. And she'd been a smoker for 30 years, then became, became a vapor. But after two or three years of vaping, she knew it was really, she felt bad. It was bad for her health. She wanted to quit. And so she went on tappingplace.com and worked with a practitioner. And again, that's really efficient because they know how to guide you. And in a single 20-minute session, she quit vaping. So it isn't always that fast, but for some people, it just produces really, really rapid reductions because, of course, the vaping was tied to stress. And then she reduced her stress and the vaping went away. So if people want to find out more about this and where to find out about the tap-in and also about your book and so on, where, what places should they look? The best way to do it is to go to my website, tappinggift.com, because you can get a free mini manual there, as well as a meditation that will guide you into uh, a relaxed state and also give you affirmations for boosting your immunity. We found in several clinical trials that when people get less stressed, their immune response improves. And today, in, 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 in today's world, that immune response is really important. In one clinical trial, people doing a week, a solid week at a retreat center, tapping meditation for a whole week, their levels of immunoglobulins, which are these molecules that neutralize the spike protein on coronaviruses, their levels of immunoglobulins rose by 
in a week. So uh, if anyone wants to look that up, just look up Bach, B-A-C-H, et al. 2019. You'll find the original study published there. But um, yeah, so we found dramatic improvements in immunity. And so we did a special immunity uh, meditation that's also at tappinggift.com. So that's the, that's a good place to start. And are you active on social media at all? A little bit. <laughs> a little so bit. Where would they where would they look on social media to find you? You can go to our uh, EFT. It's called EFT Universe. That's our social media page and connect with, with other people there. And we also have a big, big YouTube channel, and you can tap along with, with, with people there. So, for example, when, we, when we, our practitioners work with a client, they'll often videotape those sessions and put them up on our YouTube channel, and you just go and tap along with a practitioner tapping with a client on an issue similar to yours. And what is the name of the YouTube channel? Again, EFT Universe. Emotional Freedom Techniques, EFT Universe. Okay. And Dawson, is there a book that's really moved you at all in the last few months or years? I, uh, I'm a member of a best-selling group of authors called the Transformational Leadership Council. And our, uh, our, our members write all kinds of wonderful books. Um, one that really had an effect on me was my friend Andrew Newberg, his book called How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And if you want to really get inspired by how these methods are having an f- effect physically on shaping your brain, that's uh, a, a great choice. Uh, for a general book, I always recommend my friend Jack Canfield's book, The Success Principles, because Jack interviewed hundreds of people and then distilled the principles for life success into 64 like three-page little readings on, on those. And I just so wish I'd had that, Tony, when I was... 18, 20, 25. It's like having a mentor with the best advice in the world. So uh, Jack Canfield's book, The Success Principles, is right here on my desk. I look at it every few days and just read one success principle. So that's a great guide. And, and finally, before we finish, is there a quotation that you particularly like? One of the quotations that really has been a guide to me is the one that everyone knows saying that we are spiritual beings on a human path. I am a spiritual being on a human path. And in fact, you're more than that. You are the universe looking out through human eyes. And when you move into these elevated states, you you discover what the Hindus call non-duality, that there is no I and they, there is no body or there is no me. And and the universe. There is just one unitary consciousness of which I'm a part. And so living as though you're one with everything, that experience of living every single day as though you're one with everything is powerful. And so that idea that we can sit in meditation, surrender our small little visions of a limited life and limited self and merge with the all that is and be the all that is and know that we are the all that is. And then when we go grocery shopping and do our team meeting or do a podcast like this, we're doing it (laughs) with the knowledge that it just is what the the human expression of the non-local universe happens to be doing at the moment. 
Well, Dawson, thank you very much for your time. It's been, <laughs> and, I, and I really do hope people do um, check out your book and, and the website and tap in and so on. It sounds like they get some real benefit from it. So thank you. It's been a joy. Thanks, Tony. Next week is episode 31 with Trisha Nelson. And she spent the past three decades studying the addictive personality. She's, um, she's an internationally acclaimed author, a transformational speaker, and an emotional eating expert. So we're going to find out a lot more about emotional eating, about addictive personalities, and so forth in next week's episode with Trisha Nelson. If you know anyone who would find some, some real value from the information that Dawson Church has shared with us this week, please do share this episode with them and hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.